Okay, good morning, Brooke. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you is I don't know you basically at all. And so I'm excited to learn about you. You sound like you've just done fascinating work and really important work throughout your life. And where I wanted to start this conversation was really with your TED Talk. I, I saw that you did a TED Talk and I listened to it and it's very powerful. And I was really appreciative of your vulnerability and your strength um, and your encouragement in your TED Talk. And I encourage anybody who's listening to this to go watch that as well. I'm fascinated by the whole TED brand and that. How did that come about and how was that process for you? Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I started that talk, well, I started the idea of doing a TED Talk in 2016. I, I think my biggest fear, as most people have in their life, is public speaking. And I, I had been working on it in my job for your years I had to get up in front of people when I didn't want to uh, but I never felt really comfortable about it so I sort of set this goal that if I could do a TED talk then uh, I would feel like I could accomplish anything in terms of public speaking and and that was the goal it wasn't really so much for people to see it as much as just going through the process and and doing the talk itself uh, and and the process was difficult. There was a lot of work that was involved. There were a lot of rehearsals, a lot of coaching, a lot of rewriting. Um, there was these practice sessions you have to do in front of friends, in front of family, in front of people you don't know. And it was interesting to me that the hardest part was doing it in front of my family, uh, even though they they knew most of the story they they knew you know what I was talking about but I don't know what it was I just had such a hard time doing it um, in front of my family and you really your TED talk was a very emotional topic and 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 tough subject did you come up with that right away when you're thinking about what you wanted to talk about did you kind of just say if I'm going to do this I'm going to do it all the way and be completely vulnerable or was there questions or doubt in your mind on on what subjects to cover there was no doubt in my mind about it. I think for me, a couple of taboo subjects in my life, or I think most people have, is um, uh, growing up in a, an abusive home and being able to talk about it. Um, I had an alcoholic father and he was abusive to myself and um, at least one of my brothers. And I personally feel like the more I talk about it and the more vulnerable I can get with it, the more it's helpful to me and, and others. Uh, often people will say to me, I, I went through the same thing, but we never, never, never talk about it. Um, and then the second piece of it was I had uh, pretty severe postpartum depression. And that's just another subject that I think uh, women don't talk about. We don't admit it and when we do it's so painful to talk about because uh you're really supposed to feel this um joy and and deep connection immediately when you give birth and that just isn't the case for everybody um at the end of the day we are animals and we are part of the animal kingdom and uh things are not idyllic in any part of that kingdom so yeah i um our first child was in vitro. And I remember when we went through the in vitro process and we tried for years to, to have a child and couldn't. And um, it was very devastating for my wife and it definitely hit her more emotionally than it hit me. And I was kind of always thinking it's going to work out. We're, we're going to get the, the children we're, we're, we're destined to be with. And, and it did, but the talking about it to everyone, I still talk about it to everyone. And then you hear so many other people go through the same thing. And, and so I really appreciate your strength with that because it is so true. And then you know you're not isolated in that case, um, which is wonderful. And then the, the other thing that I think of when you talk about postpartum is just the male perspective of never being aware of that at all or like just so, and, and when people don't talk about it or men certainly aren't talking about these things too, they're so unaware of it. And that's such a, such a tough thing too because then there's no support there as well. And um, yeah, it must be so difficult, especially because women are expected to just instantly bond and, and have this feeling and yeah, this joyous thing and really your hormones are changing your body's changing like we're just thank yeah. you thank, thank you for talking about all that. yeah I for me it was uh very very strange I I the minute she was born and I, there's a photo of them handing her to me and I'm like what is this <laughs> you know 
it was sort of like an alien being being handed to me. I had no, no motherly instincts whatsoever. Um, I had no idea what to do with this child. And, um, and it was hard because I wanted very much in those first moments, days, hours to feel that bond. And I didn't, um, and I'm not ashamed of that. I've been, I talked to my daughter about it pretty regularly that this was um, a physiological reaction, you know, it wasn't, had nothing to do with her personally. She was a beautiful, perfect child. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get myself into that headspace. Um, I couldn't force myself into that headspace and, and it did not happen naturally. And um, now as time has gone on, I feel like, um, I'm more naturally engaged with her as a teenager when I think a lot of parents tend to sort of step back a little bit. I've, I've bonded even more with her uh, lately. Which that's a natural transition. Let's, let's, we're going to kind of jump around career-wise, but you're, one of the things you told me you're currently working on is a book about parenting teenage children, which our kids currently, as we record this, are eight and six. And I'm kind of trying to push that time of life off as far as possible and try to try to enjoy them while they're kids. But I know it's coming. I know there's wonderful parts of it. Tell me a little bit about the book and how that came about. Uh, the book came about, it's, it's actually a funny story. I had no intention of writing the book. And when uh, Abby, my daughter, she did a podcast, not a podcast, she does do a podcast, but she was doing a uh, TED talk a year after mine. When she was 12, she did a talk about um, the dangers of technology and social media on the teen brain. And hers went viral and we were invited to New York to go on the Today Show together. And we got a call from an agent while we were there asking her to write a book. <laughs> about this subject and she was 12 and you know she was like oh my gosh this sounds amazing but I don't think I'm prepared to write a book I don't even know what that would look like so we kind of went around and around about well maybe we'll write it together and ultimately she decided I, I don't want to do this I'm not ready I, I don't feel like I have enough to say and when I went to tell the agent I said you know she's out she's she's not going to do it and the agent said well what about if you wrote one uh, about kindness and I thought eh, you know we we'll talk about kindness in a minute but as much as I love it I don't think I want to write a book about it um, and the more we talked I said I feel like there's this missing piece on how to parent teens or not not so much how to parent a teen because it's different in every family but it's about this idea that most teenagers are feeling disconnected in the, in the tween teen years. And we often sort of give up as parents. We just kind of throw our hands up and say, I, I don't know what to do with this kid. I don't know who this kid is anymore. It's not who I raised. Um, so the book is 47 ideas to reconnect with your teen. And it's, um, it's interactive. It's really more of like a journal where each section is um, specific to certain topics and you will do those things um, and they all take five minutes or less. Just simple little things you can do to reconnect with your team. Yeah, which I love that practical. We are all so, so busy and overwhelmed by everything. So really practical, short time burst. That, that's a great idea. Where are you at with the book and, and kind of have you had mentors along the process? That's such a big undertaking and so different probably than anything you've ever done before. Where, how, how were you mentored throughout this and where are you at currently with it? Uh, it's a great question. I, I have not been mentored through this. It has really been like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, my agent has been really helpful uh, in terms of just helping me put this thing together. And um, my husband, it also has he's like a strategic thinker so he just lays things out and he's like this is how it needs to go I'm ADHD and I'm all over the map and so when I say spaghetti at the wall I'm I literally that's what it seems like all the time uh, but right now so as of yesterday I sent um, a draft off to my agent and um, a marketing person who is going to put together a marketing proposal to shop out to publishers and we're hoping to have a deal uh, with a publisher by the end of the year. 
Well, that is exciting. Uh, one thing I need to go back for, I want to go back to is I think as a, as a parent, pride is just innate in a lot of different ways and there's different times and you're proud of different things at different developmental points, but you putting yourself out there and doing a TED talk and especially with the vulnerability that you went with um, and, and as you said, really just to push yourself out of your comfort zone was your main goal. Then to see your daughter go through that same thing, what was that like, that experience for you to see her on stage and see her thriving? Were you mortified? Were you scared for her? What was what, just beaming? <laughs> what, what, what was that experience like? All, all of those things, all of those things. It was uh, her, her uh, TED Talk. Gosh, we, how did that come about? So we were all at a party for TEDx speakers um, that had gone the year before. So it was a party that I had been invited to. At the last minute, I had to pick her up from school. And I was like, ah, you're going to have to come with me to this party. And she knew a couple of people there. And one of them, uh, who was an organizer for TEDx, was just chatting with her and said, Abby, if you were going to do a TEDx, what would you talk about? And initially, she said something about uh, romantic relationships in middle school. And I was like, uh, maybe let's not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, her second idea was she said, you know, I think it's, it's got to be about social media. And at that time, she had a phone, a, a smartphone. And it was causing a ton of problems in our house. Uh, she was addicted to it. And she was addicted to the, the likes and the comments and you know all of it. And I could see it taking her down emotionally. And so we had taken the phone away. And uh, she is now 16. She still doesn't have a smartphone and she's fine. She has a little dumb phone that just texts and, and calls, but no camera, no internet, no nothing. And I know, you know, her friends make fun of her and stuff, but she's like, I don't care, mom, because they're all buried in their phones. Um, but I have to say, watching her go through the process, she had one month to prepare and most of us get several months to prepare. Uh, she nailed it. Like she was so amazing on stage. And she right up until the last minute was like, I don't think I can do this. Her nerves were a mess. She was so scared. And then the second she came out, it was like perfection. She just did an incredible job. And I could not have been more proud of her. I've heard that so many times, even with, you know, big time speakers and professional authors that they're so nervous to the last second. And I really do believe the best way to learn is by doing. Um, and something that I'm not good enough at is putting myself in situations where there are those hard deadlines and, and you have to do it because it really does come together so often at the end. Um, with that and with her TED Talk, one of the other things that I see constantly in myself and, and others, and especially with women, is the, the lack of confidence um, in themselves, but then so supportive and confident in others. Um, when you were watching her on there and, and beaming with confidence once she did it, I guess I, I want to back up. How, how are you gener in general with confidence? When you were going into this thing, this is called the Badass Women of Central Park. Yes. Do, you see, do you see yourself as a badass? How, how, do you, how are you with, in general with your personal confidence? I, uh, I can honestly say now at the age of 48, I do embrace the fact that I'm a badass. I, I believe that I, I do. It has taken me a long time and um. I can proudly say that now, like certainly there are areas of my life that I'm like, oh, I wish I was better at this or whatever, but I worked my ass off to get to where I am. And I have pushed myself out of my comfort zone many, many times to do things that um, I could have just let pass by. And I do it on purpose because I, I do want to feel good about myself and I want to feel like I lived a life worth living. You know, I don't, I don't want things to pass by. Has parenting impacted you with kind of those thoughts or was it just kind of a, a personal, do you see yourself doing things so that she can see you doing it or is it mostly just intrinsic? Both. I, I, I will say the older she gets, the older I get. Um, I do intentionally uh, make choices that will hopefully impact her. And one of them, um, her, her dad and I split up when she was 12, 11, 12. Um, and that was hard, uh, for both of us, for all of us, it, it was hard, but, uh, 
I, he and I worked really, really hard to maintain a friendship and respect and um, mutual admiration for each other. We live a block from each other. We regularly, you know, hang out, talk to each other, go for walks around the neighborhood. Uh, and that was really, really important to me uh, to instill in her that just because you lose somebody or you choose to leave somebody, a friend, a, a, an intimate partner, whatever, it doesn't have to be this horrible, hateful uh, situation. And she and I talk about it pretty regularly, like how hard it was and the decision process that, that went into it and, um, and how ultimately both of us are better now and happier. So uh, yeah, I regularly think about what am I doing? What am I showing her? What, what lesson is she taking from me? Wonderful. Um, let's talk about some of the fun parts of her going viral. What was, take, take me through what it looked like to go on a national talk show or where it was used to the Today Show? It was the Today Show. Yeah, it was so cool. It's got to be one of my best memories. And I know it's one of hers. They flew us to New York and put us up in a nice hotel. And, you know, we had a limo drive. It was great. And um, the best part, I think, was she was so interested in just hanging out in New York. It was sort of a bucket list for her. She has traveled all over the world. And so for some reason we had never been to New York. She got to meet everybody backstage. Um, and you know, she's 12, like they were all sort of fawning on her. Uh, Al Roker and Carson Daly and Jenna um, Bush. And then we saw Antonio, I can't think of his last name from uh, oh, the Fab Five. Um, it doesn't matter. It, somebody will know what I'm, who I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, she was just on cloud nine. And when we finished the whole, uh, the whole thing, all of them came out and wanted a picture with her, you know, it was so cute. And then we left and the, I said, what do you want to do? It's your day. How do you want to spend it? And she wanted to go buy a whole bunch of coffee and snacks and hand them out to um, some of the unhoused people on the streets of New York because it really bothered her as we were walking to the studio seeing all these people. So that's what we did. And then uh, I think within the first couple hours of leaving the show, uh, she was recognized like seven times on the street. It was so cool. She just felt like a total rock star. It was awesome. That is so awesome. Well, I think with the work I do, certainly, and just in general, if we can get the power to the younger people as soon as possible, and it kind of needs to be soon for me, because when you get older, you you know, get your own things, and then you have to get selfish in different ways, and you change. So I almost, we just need an immediate transfer for them, because they would do so much good in this world and have that mindset. Uh, yeah. with, one of, with one of her things, too, with the, the technology, it's so interesting to me, because as a parent, I think you model your parenting after the only thing you know is which is how you're parented so you either do it like that or the opposite of that but there's no roadmap with with technology and it, it's different for each family but we haven't really had a plan yet and it's so tricky because it can be so toxic even as adults it can be so toxic and how many likes you're getting and observing it and now it becomes a part of business so you need to be aware of these things it is a tricky balance so it's neat that it seems like it's from her driven from her now at this point that she's doing this way and she, are any of her friends did any of her friends take on that as well has anybody made that leap to go back to dumb phone uh i think one of her friends does have a dumb phone uh her stepsister has a dumb phone um we're it's funny we're just now talking again about allowing her to have a smartphone partly because she's now pushing 17 and um I can't keep track of everything she's doing. And so, you know, I bought her like a paper planner and she's like, mom, can I just, I just need a calendar. So her dad and I are talking about that and probably we'll get one for her in the next couple of weeks. But I have to say, I feel pretty good that she spent those really formative teen years um, not focused on social media and just buried in TikTok videos and everything else. That's not to say that, you know, we did something right and other people didn't. It's just for her and her anxiety and ADHD, it was just, it was too much. And so she has a TV and she has an Alexa and, you know, she's got her school laptop so she can still access things. But it was just that sort of nonstop um, feedback loop from friends and 
people sending her stuff. And there, there were some inappropriate things happening. Even at 11, I was like, what, what am I seeing on your phone? You know, this is not, I was shocked. So, um, so yeah, I think she, she realizes now as she looks around, she's like, oh my God, nobody ever looks up from their phone and we could be sitting at the same table and texting each other, <laughs> not talking to each other. So, uh, I think she's ready. She's probably ready to get a new one, but, um, we'll see. So take me back to kind of where you grew up, how you originally did your career path mostly. Where did you grow up? But then how did you get kind of into your, um, your wine, which probably is always a winding career path. Can you tell me a little about that? Sure. Yeah. So I moved around a lot as a kid, but, uh, I was born in Ohio. I spent my younger years here in Colorado in kind of the Centennial area and then moved to uh, San Francisco Bay Area for 22 years. I was there uh, and then came back to Colorado. This was always what I felt was home and always wanted to get back here. Uh, so when my daughter was born, we moved back because I, I was suffering pretty bad with the postpartum depression. I needed to be near family and my parents were here. So we came back uh, and I, I love it here. I've been in the Central Park area since... Um, well, let's see, about 13 or 14 years now. And let's see, career path. So I, uh, I got my degree in art history, which, um, you know, I wouldn't say everybody was thrilled about that, but it was for me, school was not something I enjoyed. It was hard for me. Uh, looking back now, realizing I had ADHD, there were reasons I didn't enjoy school. Um, but I loved in my senior year, I took an art history class as an elective and I was like, this is, this is what I love. I wanna do this. And uh, I knew there were no jobs, but I did it anyway. I traveled uh, to Europe and lived in France for a couple of years while I was getting my degree and then came back. Uh, I worked in every low paying art job you could get. So I worked in a museum, I worked in, uh, auction house, you know, a big expensive auction house. Uh, I ultimately landed in public art. So I worked for the city of San Jose for several years doing public art projects uh, out there. And then I came to Colorado. I immediately called the folks here. Uh, in fact, one of the badass women you should talk to, Kendall Peterson. She was my boss at the city of Denver doing public art. So I was there for a while. Um, but I ultimately, one of the things I've always thought in my life is that when I get tired of a job or a specific path that, especially in an area like the arts, where there are so many people waiting in line for those jobs, that if I ever felt not passionate about it anymore, it's time for me to go and let somebody else do that work. So I did. And um, I found this job listing for the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation, and I thought, what is this? You know, it's a, a foundation, a nonprofit that um, pays people to be kind. I, I just could, I was, this is weird. So, uh, but that ultimately was sort of my top value throughout my life was kindness. And um, it was one of the things I felt most strongly about in raising my daughter that I wanted, if nothing else, I just wanted her to be kind and I wanted people to be kind to her. So I thought this seems like kind of a kismet moment and, and uh, I interviewed for the job. I knew that I was not the right candidate because I didn't have nonprofit experience. I didn't have a lot of management experience. I was on paper, not the right person, but uh, I harassed my boss for nine weeks and kept explaining to him all the reasons I was the right person and how many ideas I had for what we could do with the foundation, which had at the time was quite dormant. They were giving out bumper stickers and mugs and t-shirts and they had no um, measurable impact that we could report to the board. So when I came in, I had one part-time employee. We decided that education was where we wanted to focus. And we wrote a, I didn't, but we hired people to write a social emotional learning curriculum that focuses on some of the key concepts of kindness, like respect and responsibility and gratitude and all those things. Um, and then we did four years of research on that curriculum and uh, it is now evidence-based. 
Um, and we, so we've been out there for about eight or nine years with the curriculum. We are in 50,000, no, sorry, 40,000 schools globally and um, 100 different languages. And everything we do is completely free of charge. So it's a lovely tool and a lovely gift that we can give to uh, educators. Now we're pre-K through high school, which is awesome. That is awesome. And I love that you kind of followed up and followed up. And that's the uh, thing I've seen a lot is the perseverance part of it and the persistence part of things are so important. Um, how did you learn those skills? Where did, where did those come from in your life? Hmm, that's a, they've evolved over time. I probably would say from my mom who um, as watching her as a child who, um, you know, lost her husband to suicide, dealt with four kids who were, you know, lost their father, there was alcoholism, abuse, all of that. She was kind of the rock, uh, always. And I never felt that we were in danger or unsafe or anything, even though, you know, now as an adult, and when I talk to her, it's like, oh, we were on the brink all the time of bankruptcy, of losing the house, of, you know, various things. And uh, that has stuck with me that if she could get through that and maintain uh, a semblance of a family where we all sat down every night, had dinner together, you know, there was, it was, it felt to me like a relatively normal family because of her. And so I think when Abby was born and I was going through my own chaotic mess, that's where the resilience and the perseverance really showed up for me was if she could do what she did, there's, there's no excuse for me to not step up and figure this out and, and push through, get the help that I need, ask for help when I need it. Um, and then I think one of the other funny things is, you know, we hear those statistics about how women will often uh, go into a job interview and not ask for what they're worth or take whatever's offered. And the more I learned about that and the more I saw women who were doing it, you know, going in and saying, no, I'm, that's not good enough. And I won't take the job if, if it's not what I want. That has really stuck with me, uh, especially, you know, where I work now, it's a wonderful place, but it's all men, almost all men. Um, and I have multiple times shared that I feel very devalued here as a female specifically. Um, and it's paid off. I, I think, you know, they're kind of like, oh, I, we didn't know we were doing that and we want to change that. So uh, I, I'm happy that I have a voice now that I don't think I had before. Yeah, one thing I've vowed to and really try to do is use my, I've become, I call my privilege journey and of the last 10 years is so aware of my many, many privileges. And one of them is being a man and being able to speak out in different situations and never feel judged because of my gender for that or in, and also feel listened to. So if I am in a situation where there is only one woman or something, I try to do speaking out so that she doesn't have to or so that she knows there's an ally in the room or whatever. Um, but it's a going to be a long, long process, but it needs to, I'm, I'm all, I'm ready for women to take over the world. That's my, that's my goal. I think we'll all be better for 4,000 years. And then we can trade notes and see, see, there we go. Maybe men will be marginalized at that point and they'll be, you know, in a better, better space to lead again, but, um, but I'm ready now. So good for you for, for sticking up. Uh, one of the things that I see in life is a lot of successful people are like your situation have really been forged in fire and the ones who come out of it and are successful have risen to higher heights often uh, risen to higher heights often because they have dealt with those things which obviously impact them in so many different ways as a parent who's now raising your kid in a way less chaotic home obviously how do you kind of balance that of wanting to push her and having her go through some struggles but also have her be in a really safe environment and um, just live her best life Oh my God, that's like the biggest question. Um, it's a great question. I struggle with this a lot uh, and she knows it like every day, uh, you know, because there is this period where I think every parent goes through it um, where you see them pulling away 
and they want to spend more time with their friends and they, you know, you're embarrassing and all these things. And so many times we have, we, she and I are so close that I never thought it would happen to us. I was like, nah, it won't be us, you know? And so I struggle with letting her go and trusting her and giving her space and freedom um, to make mistakes, to um, keep secrets from me, you know, all the things that come with uh, her growing up and, and me growing away from her, I guess. Um, but I can't, I have to say, maybe it's just me, but I have found it deeply painful and very difficult even though she is a really good kid. And honestly, um, I have nothing to complain about. Like she, she doesn't do bad stuff. She's not, you know, she's not a bad kid, but every little thing I'm like, what are you doing on your phone? You know, what are you, where are you going? Where are you sure? Are you really telling me that you're going with your friend or where are you really going? Who's actually picking you up? Um, and I don't have any reason to mistrust her. Uh, so it's just that balance of being maybe too protective to letting her live her own life but also like she's still my kid so uh it's hard i don't i don't have advice on that one right now because i think it's different for everybody i just deeply deeply love this kid and um and so i just i just want her to be okay that's all i want for her yeah i'm 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 with you too i, I, don't, I certainly don't have the answer to that and I think no one does. And it, like you talked about, I think it's so individual and we've got two kids and they're so different. So that'll be so weird too, going through the process with them. Our first, our son is such a rule follower. And I think birth order is a part of that, but also the nature side of things. And our daughter, you know, pushes back on everything and it's just wild. So seeing their interaction and, and how we're going to raise them during adolescence, my wife's from Poland. So culturally it's very different. I think about things even like when they're 18, they're going to be able to drink in Poland illegally and, and not in America. That's, right. no, that's, that's going to be weird. Um, so with this though, what, what kind of stuff are you doing with your book? Um, what are kind of some of the, the five minute th tasks like in order to, to help people connect? What, what are your, some of the things you came up with? Uh, so there's a few there. One of my favorites, uh, I think it's the only one in there right now that, um, takes more than five minutes and it's sort of a few five minute processes but it's uh this concept of savoring and the idea is um you you know abby's a she's a big baker she loves baking that's her happy place and so during the pandemic there was a lot of baking happening in my house but one of the things we've never really done is um bread we've never made bread and so that was uh, something we worked on together and realized how simple that process is, but how cool the process was too. Like you start with this three ingredients and then leave it overnight and it rises. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's got huge. And so the process itself, I, I talk about in the book, you know, making the dough together and then watching what happens overnight and then baking it. And then the ultimate savoring moment is sitting down and eating it together and and I give little you know scripted moments or or uh, writing prompts or um, conversation prompts to say while you're eating the bread you can talk about the process itself or just talk about one of your favorite memories in the kitchen um, together it's those kinds of things that aren't so aggressive in terms of um, trying to connect with your kids where you're like, okay, we're going to go on a camping trip. And the kids are like, oh, that sounds awful. But five minutes of eating a meal together or baking the bread, um, that's not so bad. There's also things like um, just figuring out where, where does your kid engage with you? A lot of times it's in the car um, when you're in the front seat and they're in the back seat or they're sitting next to you on their phone that you can have some pretty open, vulnerable conversations and they don't even know that it's happening. Um, you know, and asking questions a little bit differently instead of how was school today? What was the best part of today? You know, those kinds of things. So they're really simple little tools throughout that are conversation prompts, journal prompts, um, baking, drawing, art related, going for nature walks, all these things uh, where, you can turn off technology for five minutes and connect. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping 
some of it resonates. I mean, there's things in there that Abby and I have done together and had great results. Other things that we were like, eh, I don't know. But other people that tried it said, oh my gosh, this was amazing. So. That must be so cool to, to get that feedback. And, and one of the things that I'm really big on is trying to document, and I never was a journaler, um, and I wish I was, and I would love to go back in time and really analyze my thoughts. What I've started to do now is just voice recording with my phone. So I will use voice memos and, and record my thoughts and feelings when I'm in the moment. I do it with my kids too, because it doesn't take up a lot of space. I'm not going to erase it later. And like the podcast format, like long format audio, I love. And so that could be something too that I, when I, when I thought about your bread, first of all, I thought my, my father-in-law bakes his own bread in Poland and it's so good. And I just love it. And, but the sitting down and having a little conversation over it and experiencing your joy just makes me think personally of what it will be like when my kids are teenagers. And, and when you feel those moments fleeting with our mama bird interviews, we're doing a lot of graduation interviews now, which are so wonderful because we, our women really get the the high schoolers are leaving from high school to college to talk about their love for their family and little moments that they appreciate. And they do appreciate these things. They just never tell you and they are going to miss them. They just never tell you. And I know from a parental perspective, as I'm trying to be in the moment yet not think, you know, about them moving out already and all this stuff, my wife's ready to push them out. She does most of <laughs> she's, she's She doesn't have that same sentimental feeling that I have, but I think that's so wonderful. Um, with with the the feedback and and that loop, was there a, does your agent help guide you with what kind of the process, what you should be doing? Are they mostly to help you try to find publishing? Um, how did that relationship start and work with an agent? How do you find an agent? Because I know a lot of people want to write a book of different kinds. My dad did write a book this last year, which was a novel, and he tried to find an agent, was unsuccessful, um, ended up self-publishing. Um, and But he found someone to do. He's been working on a screenplay. So that's oh, that wow. part happens. So that's very cool. Um, but yeah, how did you find your agent and how, how are they doing more guiding than um, just trying to find publishing or how does that work? That's a great question. And I did not know the answer when I got the agent. So that the agent was the one who had called asking if Abby wanted to write the book. And um, I had no, again, like no knowledge of any of this. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. An agent. And she's with a big publishing firm out of London and New York. And I I was like, oh, okay, whatever, we got a, an agent. And the number of people who were like, what? What, from that company, you have an agent? And, um, but I will say, you know, she, she's wonderful, but she's not um, a guide in that sense. She's like, my job is to get it to publishers. Your job is to get it to me so that it is presentable to publishers. So uh, I wish I had done things differently in the beginning. I probably would have hired like a, a literary coach or even a ghostwriter or something. I don't know. I just was completely paralyzed at the beginning thinking, I, this is not for me, you know. Uh, but I also knew after talking to people, if you have an agent like her from, you know, one of these big places, then you, you've been handed a huge gift. Don't waste it. So I, I have not. Um, towards the end of the process where we are now, that it's ready to go shop to publishers. She's been very helpful and, but she's not an editor. Like she doesn't go in there and say, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. Uh, she's not doing any of that. She's kind of like, this looks good. The way you've written it, you might, you might consider a chapter on this because, you know, as the parent of a teen, I, I need help with this, but that's about it. And, um, and so it's been kind of a solo, total chaotic, finding myself through you know tunnels in the dark kind of process but it's like the TED talk for me I feel like um this will be a success no matter what at the end because she asked me recently what what is your goal you know with all of this in terms of sales and whatever else I, said, I just want to see the physical thing like even if one is published then I can be like oh my god I did it I'm a published author but uh, you know, of course she wants to make money. So I, I'm just happy that this fell into my lap. I mean, I feel very, very lucky. Yeah. And I think the, the life and success so often is about networking and, and taking advantage of opportunities when you do connect to people. And it's so funny how 
random that can seem and, and, and how it works. And I think that what I've heard from writing books too, and really anything is just like start, like it's gonna, your first draft is gonna be terrible no matter what. So just get stuff on paper and improve it from there. And I always tell our women done is better than perfect. And with most things in life, it does not need to be perfect. And you'll so often overthink, especially really motivated, successful people will overthink so many things, um, especially teenagers too. They do in so many ways as well and judge themselves in a really harsh. And so I think you're right with coaching too, is that's something that I've never done well is having mentors or finding mentors. Um, but I see the, the just extreme value in it. And then another thing that you made me think about too was that you may know you probably are writing things that a lot of people have thought about but are not doing and just having a constant reminder there or kind of a guide to be able to do it is so valuable because it makes all the difference because we just learn and forget so much and there's so much information out there that that those kind of things having a constant reminder or guide and if you enjoy it going through it because yeah your kids are going to be out of the house soon and you're going to miss these days quickly and yep. hopefully you've, you've got them to call back. And so that's, that's something. Do, do you personally journal or have you done anything like that throughout your life or does your daughter? Uh, we both do on and off. Um, and it, it, it comes and goes, it depends on where we are in life. I know during COVID, um, we were both feeling pretty scared and down at the beginning when we realized, okay, this wasn't going to be two weeks. Um, and we felt really isolated. And both of us are uh, sort of extroverted introverts, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, we, we were not happy being inside uh, all the time. And so we ended up doing a, a gratitude jar where I said to her, you know, at least once a week, we need to write down something that happened this week that we were grateful for. And uh, in the beginning, it was hard. You know, it was like, oh, grateful that we have cabinet full of food, we have enough toilet paper, you know, whatever. Um, and then we realized like they got deeper and deeper as time went on, uh, this, we did it for a year and the gratitude notes became much more meaningful. And as we read them, uh, we, I think we took them out on New Year's Eve, read them all and realized like, actually that year was not that bad when you look back on it because you decide what's going to stick in your mind, what's going to be the memory, you know, that's kind of a mindset thing. And so if you're journaling, if you're writing out gratitude, um, that's what's going to stick with you. Yeah, I did that, did that, started to do a gratitude journal and then tried to implement that with my students. And the advice was always like, be very specific. If you say I'm grateful for my mom today, um, that's not going to stick with you. If you say I'm grateful that my mom drove me to school today so that I could learn, then if you get 10 of those in a row and then something annoys you about your mom, then you're going to think back to those 10 things and say, oh, she's, she's done a good job. So I, I, need to, I need to still be grateful for her. And I, I think that that's so overrated is, is or underrated is, is having that gratitude um, for the tough times and, and being able to move forward from it. What is, um, when does the book come out, do you think? When is, what's the time frame? We're hoping by the end of the year. Uh, it all depends on whether a publisher picks it up. So uh, that would be, that'd be awesome. But this has been going on for four years. So <laughs> I'm finally like, let's do something with it. Um, I was going to say something else about, about gratitude. You are correct. Like the more specific you, can, you, specific you can be, the better. And it creates those sort of neural pathways that, um, that remind you, as you say, when something bad goes, uh, you can pull on those memories. And we call it um, at Random Acts of Kindness, we call it our emotional piggy bank. So every time you put a penny in that bank, it's a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of uh, positivity, whatever, that when things are hard and you're having difficult relationship or conflict or anything, you can sort of pull from that piggy bank and say, oh wait, there's a lot in here. I'm not emotionally broke, so. Another thing that makes me think of, which I've lived a very charmed and, and privileged life is I grew up in San Diego where I am right now visiting my mom. And when we moved to Denver about 13 years ago, I was born in Denver, but grew up in San Diego and I never experienced weather and having weather, which is such a mild, mild weather in Denver, but still having some weather made me appreciate the good weather so much more. And I'm trying to see that in my own life now that these downtimes certainly make you appreciate the good times more. We're, we're here for my brother's wedding this weekend and 
as my family ages, getting together for wonderful things as opposed to funerals and tough things is, you know, is a really joyous experience. And so those those positives. Um, you've had a lot of tough stuff with your youth. How did you get past, not past that, or how did you deal with those kind of things? Did you do professional therapy? Did you do, how did you get to where you are now from there? Uh, it's a good question. I, I did not do therapy um, as a child, as a young adult. I honestly blocked out a lot of it. And it wasn't until I was in my very early 20s that it all came back to me. And then I've, I, th I probably made a mistake of sort of telling everybody in the family, like, oh my God, I, you know, this stuff happened. And then <clears throat> found out, okay, it happened more than I knew. And there were other things happening in the house. Um, but I, I guess I didn't consider therapy, you know, being a kid in the seventies and eighties is kind of like, Oh, well, you go to therapy if you're crazy, you know? And I didn't feel crazy. I just thought, I guess with everything, when you grow up in a family, whatever's happening in there, in that family dynamic is normal. It's your normal. Right. So I didn't know until much later that it was not normal. And, um, now, interestingly, you know, I'm pushing 50. I'm finally dealing with a lot of those memories and things that I didn't feel I had pent up emotion over. And so I've been doing EMDR with my therapist and it's been amazing. I, I honestly was a skeptic, but um, it has changed my view of uh, the baggage that I carry around. You know, I still have it, but it doesn't weigh me down and it doesn't define me. It just is part of who I am. And I chose to look towards post-traumatic growth instead of, uh, you know, post-traumatic uh, difficulties, I guess. One of the, the first things when we started the, the program I work with and the young women from Mambalo that I work with, one of the first things I realized right away was mental health is everything. And these women, many of them have had traumatic experiences and some of them had experience with abuse. And as a teacher, I was never aware of this stuff, but now outside the classroom, now they're adults. I can have deeper conversations with them. And I don't really touch that, but I just saw how much the mental side of things was impacting them. And so we got partnered with the Center of Trauma and Resilience, which does free therapy for our women. It was just life-changing. And it seems like too, such a stigma around therapy, um, which I've noticed not as much like with the women of our community are way more out um, spoken about it, which is good because I think then that gets to even a lot of the kids in our community are now doing therapy and, and really positively impacting their lives. And um, we need more therapists. I know there's a pipeline of that, and a lot of it's hard to it's hard to do, it and it should be. But I, I know that's going to be an issue. But thank you for sharing that. And it's something I've never personally done, but I see it for myself too. One of the struggles that I have is my life is really good and really easy in so many ways, but I want to be doing more or achieving more and still also be appreciative of the moment and my kids at their age. And so balancing those types of things and working with someone as a partner to try to figure out how to get to where I want to be and, and, and make an impact I want, but also be okay with the process and how slow things move is something that I'm personally want to work on, but need mm -hmm. to, need to get there, need to get there too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I, I, I tell people all the time now, I'm like, especially since the stigma is um, being worked on so much around mental health that everybody should get a therapist. I mean, we all have shit to talk about. <laughs> we all do. And um, Abby has a therapist and, you know, half the time she's like, I'm fine. I don't want to go in. You know, there's nothing going on, but there's always something going on. Abby, she was what are, like, I guess about 18 months ago, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And it was fascinating watching her you know, in the hospital, she was completely freaked out because she didn't know what MS was. She didn't know what this meant. And she was afraid they were going to like cut into her skull and do brain surgery. And she was completely freaked out and we didn't know what it meant. Um, and so they were all, everybody in the hospital was like, you know, she get her into therapy so that she can understand. She did not want any part of that. She didn't want to know about the disease. She wasn't interested in hearing um, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. And so ultimately we did get her into therapy for this as well. And, and her therapist said, it's pretty typical. You know, if you've gotten this kind of news, especially as a teen to say, 
I don't really, I'm just going to bury my head and uh, I don't want to know. And eventually they will come to not only learn more about it, but sort of own it in their own way. And that's exactly where she is now. She's like, I got this. I know, I know the disease in and out. I know what to do. And she wants to mentor and help other kids with MS. So um, just, I just, therapy is, it's kind of a godsend. <laughs> and all that younger generation always sees it as a way to help others. I think whatever comes in their life. I noticed that time and time again is why we need to get them in power. It's always helping others. And I think so much that's the age of life, but also they just look at the, the world different with all the pressures that are on them from the world to, to help others, which is, which I find very hopeful for the, for the future. What's, and speaking of the future, as we close down here, what's in the future for you? What do you see with the rest of your, your career, for example, or things that you're excited about moving forward? You've been working on this book for so long, obviously getting that out there is going to be a huge relief for you. What do you, what do you see next? Um, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, I plan to stay at the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation for as long as they'll have me. Um, I love it here. I love the work we are allowed to do um, without having to fundraise or charge money. Um, I think I, I recently got remarried and uh, and it's been interesting because we don't actually live together full time. He's in the Springs and I'm up here. And so every other week we're together. And so hopefully in the very near future, we'll actually be able to live together. Um, but I think that I, my next two years is just supporting uh, my kid until she goes to college and making sure that um, our relationship stays intact and uh, helping others do the same. That's, that's my hope is I can help, help others because it feels like right now, especially in Central Park, everybody's little sweet toddlers have grown up into teens and I see the pain all around me of what, what parents are going through. So. I want to help. There you go. It's not just the young people that want to help too. So that's, that is wonderful. <laughs> All right, Brooke, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your time with me. I learned a lot from you. And um, when my kids become teenagers, that book will be out probably in its second or third edition by that yeah. time. And, <laughs> and I will get it. But I'm excited to um, learn from you and connect with you and keep up the great work. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. <laughs>